All right, well, Psalm 97, we're in our Summer of Psalms series. This is going to be our, our uh, sermon series through the summer, obviously, and getting us into, I think Labor Day weekend will be the last uh, Sunday in this sermon series. And then in the fall, we're planning to kick off our series uh, through the book of Acts, which I'm excited to do. So that's kind of the trajectory of where we're going. But um, Psalm 97 is, is one that has just really encouraged my heart this week as, we've, uh, as, as I prepared for, for giving this to you and sharing what the Lord has, I think, laid on my heart for this. Um, as, as I read through this and, and worked through this psalm, I think one of the key things that I've seen in my own heart is how easy it is for me to be tempted to see God as being very small uh, in comparison or in contrast to the trials uh, of my life or the troubles of the world, and that when things start to get difficult or things happen, and of course we all know things happen, right? Stuff comes up in life that takes us off guard, uh, that surprises us, that, that can, can harm us or hurt us. Um, our temptation, at least my temptation, I don't want to speak for all, all of you, but I think most of us can resonate with this, that we are, we are tempted to see God as being very small and out of control and, and not what he actually is, which is the sovereign Lord of glory who rules and reigns in the world. And this psalm, I believe, is in our Bibles because it shows us that clear truth that God is sovereign over all things. But it's not just that he's sovereign over all things. The psalm actually takes us further than that. It shows us that we are to actually rejoice and be glad in that truth. That that truth should lead our hearts to joy. And I think that that's really the point of this psalm is that we're not helplessly wandering around in this world without a, a greater uh, being, that this, this God that Scripture tells us exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ruling and reigning in the, in the world and in our lives. And that, I think, is what can produce joy in us, uh, knowing these things and trusting the Scriptures as it teaches this truth. And so that's where Psalm 97 gets us. Um, if you just want to look at the first verse, I think the first verse gets us uh, clearly to that point. Uh, and then we'll, we'll just unpack these, these words today. But it says, the Lord reigns. <clears throat> Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. That first phrase, the Lord reigns. That is really what it says it is, right? That God is in heaven, ruling, reigning, in control of the universe. That's what it means to say that God is sovereign. That's the word that we tend to throw around in church world. Uh, we talk about God being sovereign. And what it means to say that he is sovereign means that he is reigning. He is ruling. He's in control. He's not being taken by surprise. There's no power struggle that he's engaged in. I've been reading uh, a, a book, uh, actually a, a series of books by Winston Churchill uh, on the history of the English-speaking peoples. Sounds really, it's actually riveting for me, but I don't know if you'd find it riveting. Uh, but in this, you, you're, uh, he's, he's talking about all the kings of England and the, the, the power struggles and all of these things that these quote-unquote sovereigns uh, 
had to deal with on earth. And uh, I'm at a time now where they've just beheaded the king, King Charles I. They've dismantled the monarchy, but what replaced it was Thomas Cromwell, who became a dictator. And uh, so then eventually, I think he's going to get taken care of here too. But regardless, you see this power struggle in the world and among rulers of the world and leaders of the world, but God is not in any such fight. He's not, he's not wringing his hands over what he's going to do. He's not pacing back and forth in his throne room, afraid. He, he's not calling counselors to help him figure it out. Why? Because he needs no counselors. He's sovereign. And the fact that he is sovereign and that he's reigning and ruling in the world actually, according to this first verse, is meant to lead our hearts to rejoice and be glad. The Lord reigns. Let the earth, and that's not just talking about the physical planet on which we live, but the inhabitants of the earth, the people who live on the earth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. That phrase, many coastlands, is used throughout the Old Testament particularly to talk about as a way of referring to the, the nations of the world. The, the world in which the, the writers of uh, Old Testament scripture, the world that they knew existed was uh, around the Mediterranean Sea. They, they had a pretty small world, relatively speaking, because they didn't know much of what existed beyond just their, where they could travel right, by foot. We hadn't yet discovered the other continents. Um, and so obviously their, their understanding of the whole world is represented in this idea of the many coastlands, the, the inhabitants of these cities along the Mediterranean Sea. This is referring to, to those outside of the people of Israel, but it's their way of referring to the whole world as they understood it and knew it. And so here you're, see, you're seeing this call to see the Lord on the throne, ruling and reigning in the world, and that that should lead our hearts, all the earth and all the coastlands to be glad and rejoice. This is, this is where the sovereignty of God should lead us. I, I think that the fact that God is actually in control should settle our hearts more than anything else in turbulent times. Like, if we live our lives functionally as if we're in charge and we're in control, very, very quickly, very easily, we realize, well, that's not true. Because we can't control the health diagnoses we may receive. We can't control everything about what our children become. We can't control anything ultimately at the end of the day. But God is on the throne He's ruling and reigning. He's still reigning even when we get that health diagnosis or even when our kids rebel or even when we have financial hardships or whatever else may come into our lives. We have a God who is on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And the, the old pastor, Charles Spurgeon, um, ministered in London over the 18, uh, late 1800s. Here's, here's what he had to say about the sovereignty of God. I thought this was helpful. He says, there is no attribute, attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. No attribute more comforting than God's sovereignty. 
He says, under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they, meaning the children of God, believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend for than the doctrine of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. I don't know how those words resonate with you, but do we, re- do we actually love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? We should, although we probably don't all the time. Certainly when things get confusing in life and when things don't really add up to what we think they should or circumstances are seemingly out of control for us, we, we can bristle at the thought that God is actually ordaining these things to happen. But we shouldn't bristle. We should actually rejoice and be glad that God is in control because that is the only hope that we really have in this world of chaos and in this world of turbulence and in the challenges that we face, both personally and beyond the person. So the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. That is the theme of this psalm. From here on out, the rest of this psalm begins to describe this God who sits on the throne and shows us more and more about him. So let's, let's read the next section. We're going to read verse 2 through 5, and then we'll stop and talk a little bit about it. It says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. <clears throat> his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now, this is a descriptor, and it uses a lot of these illustrations to help us kind of picture in our minds what God's ruling of the universe is like. Let me just walk us through a few of these analogies or images that that are used. First, in verse 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Well, what does that mean? This is actually trying to draw us back, I think, to the the picture in Exodus uh, of Moses going up onto Mount Sinai and there uh, being kind of held at arm's length from, from God in his fullness of glory. Right, because the fullness of God's glory would have killed Moses. He couldn't have physically withstood that reality of God in his glory. And so there is a sense of cloud and darkness that surrounds him, not in wickedness. Don't hear that. That's not what it means by darkness. But it means that there's some, some kind of unapproachable reality here, this majesty that God has that as human beings, uh, we are unable to fully approach this God in, in and of ourselves, which is why we need Jesus. That's the whole thing, that Jesus is the mediator between us and God, that he stands as God and man for us to approach 
this God. The writer of Hebrews, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about this, uh, where we are unable to approach God on the mountain in and of ourselves, in our sinfulness, but through Christ and the righteousness we have in him, we can approach this God by faith. And so we see that there is this reality of God's majesty, his, his sovereignty, his rulership of the world that does keep us at somewhat of an arm's length, somewhat, but not fully through because of Christ. But at the same time, we see at the end of verse two, it says righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So while there is a, a majesty about God and even a mystery in some ways of God, we know that there is a foundation to God's throne that is not of an arbitrary tyrant, but of a God who can be trusted. God, even in his glory, has the very foundations of his throne right, as righteousness and justice. All that is right and just in the world is the very foundation of God's throne. He is not some uh, dictator in the human sense. He is not some wicked God who just wants to be like what the gods of the, the Old Testament and the gods of the Greek world would have been, just hostile, volatile, angry. No, God's foundation, the foundation of his throne is right and just. Verse three through five goes on to talk about these more expressions that says fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. The lightnings light up, his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. All of this is expressing something to us that we need to know. It expresses that and it directs our attention to the fact that the universal kingship of Jesus Christ means that every opposition cannot stand in his way. There is nothing that stands in God's way. His adversaries, they don't stand in his way. He can burn them up in a moment. The mountains, the physical mountains could melt like wax before him. This is, these are poetic expressions of God's sovereignty over man and over nature, that he is not, uh, he's not boxed in by anything. Every opposition that faces him will be cleared away. There is no one that can stand in his way or thwart his plans. The theologian A.W. Pink explains it this way. He, he writes that the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy being infinitely elevated above the highest creature. God is the most high, the Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases and only as he pleases. Now, that I think is helpful because the, the reality is, is that God's sovereignty means that there is nothing that can stop him. That's what it means to be sovereign. You, you have total control Nothing can stop what you want to do. I know some of this language can feel a little fire and brimstone-y, right? The, the descriptions of fire going around him and lightnings and mountains melting. These, these can definitely draw our hearts to kind of the judgment of God. And the reality is that there will be a day of judgment for those 
uh, who, who reject Jesus. We know that. There is a reality there. But this, I don't think, is the primary focus of this psalm. I think we need to go back to the reality of verse one, which is that the sovereignty of God should lead the nations of the world and the earth itself to rejoice. Yes, there's a reality of, of God's judgment. That, that is true. He will bring that to bear in his time. But what this is really drawing us to is that God's sovereign power to rule and reign in the world is good news for us, should make us glad. It is great news if we are in, in Christ and therefore children of God and God is our heavenly father. If our heavenly father has the, the power and ability to move every obstacle out of his way and therefore out of our way as we are united to him, that is great news for us. And it should lead us to rejoice. Moving through here, let's look at verse uh, 6 through 9, verses 6 through 9 together. It says this, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. These verses tell us that the sovereignty of God means that God is the only true God and therefore must be worshiped. The, the heavens, verse 6, proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. The heavens is a, is a word that refers to the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, those things that are observable through the sky. These realities are drawn to us because they are so far beyond our reach. We cannot climb high enough to get to, uh, I mean, just what we know of the universe, what we know of the, the galaxies around us, is that no human being could ever live long enough to get outside of our own solar system. We, we are just hopelessly and helplessly uh, stuck here in so many ways. And, and yet all of the realities of what's outside of our reach proclaims the righteousness of God. They show us that God is a God of glory. They they actually display that for us. They proclaim it. This is what Psalm 19.1 says as well. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we're seeing here that we, we can know things about God from his creation. We can know things about God from his word, but we don't have the fullness of, of all that God is. We can't wrap our heads around all that God is. And yet he's given us glimpses into himself. God is the one that the sky proclaims. The peoples of the world see his glory through that and through his word. And so what, what we're seeing here is that it is, I think the logical progression of these verses is that if, if God's heavens, the heavens being the, the, the outer world from our planet that we can never 
reach no matter how hard we try. Um, if that reality is, is made by God and proclaims God's glory, then how foolish is it for us to try to make these false gods? To make an idol or an image with our own hands and then say, well, that's God. I'm going to worship that. That is really the height of uh, foolishness and, and frankly, just stupidity. To make something yourself and then say, well, that thing is God. and I'm going to worship it even though I just made it. It was literally just a piece of wood five minutes ago. Now it's God somehow. Like that is really, really foolish. And so while we can boast in what we make, we, we can't, we ought not to uh, ever boast uh, in, in the sense that we've done this and therefore this should be worshiped because that's exalting ourselves above God. And God himself, the psalm tells us in verse nine, is exalted far above all gods. I want to take us for a moment to the New Testament on this because I think there's a passage in, in Acts chapter 17 that is very enlightening on this issue. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. We'll be in Acts 17 for just a, a couple minutes here. But um, in the context of what's happening in the story is, uh, you can pick it up in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So he's in Athens, Greece. He's waiting for them. Them refers to Timothy and Silas. They are, they're off in Thessalonica at the moment. He's waiting for them to get to Athens. So while Paul's waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities or foreign gods because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a big amphitheater in Athens where people would gather to hear things, saying, we may, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, so that's all they did. They just wanted to hear the newest thing, the, the greatest thing, the next thing. Kind of, and they, they didn't even have social media to fuel that, so that's interesting. Humans are humans, I guess. Um, but here's what happened. So verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Here's, here's like a summary of his message to them. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious because as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. The inscription says, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So, so Paul's going through Athens and he finds this altar that has the inscription to an unknown God. In other words, the Athenians, the Greeks, they had hundreds of gods. They had a pantheon of gods, but they, they weren't convinced that they knew all the gods. So they made one altar for the ones that they might miss because they didn't want to make that God angry by missing them. And so they just kind of covered their bases. And Paul says, well, here's, 
Here's what you're doing. You're worshiping this God as unknown, but here's what I'll tell you about him. The God, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that's, that's what Paul says to these idol worshipers in Athens. But notice how the emphasis in Paul's message to them is this. All of these phony gods you're believing in and worshiping are just made up by you. They're from the art and imagination of man. But the God that you actually have set up this altar to, this God you don't know about, he's actually the God that made everything. He made it all. He's in control of it all. He's determined actually where you live and how long you live and what your period of time is on this earth and all the boundaries of your dwelling place. He's actually the God who's in control. And he then pivots to Jesus being the one that God sent to save us from our sins and prove that by raising him from the dead. We, we see this reality play out in, in this Psalm, in Psalm 97, we're seeing this reality of how foolish it is to worship other gods because those gods are just made by us when in fact we have a God who made us and everything else, and he deserves to be worshipped. He's worthy of it, and he is exalted above all other gods. All right, verse 10 through 12, go back to Psalm 97. Um, These last few verses really just lay out then what the response of the heart for each one of us should be in light of what God is as the sovereign Lord who rules and reigns. Verse 10. It says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. I think there are really three responses for each of us as we come to grips with the reality of God's sovereignty. The first is the first half of verse 10, which is to love God and hate what is evil. It says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. We are are called to love God and therefore love by extension what God loves. And the alternative of that, the flip of that, the other side of that coin is that we should 
actually hate what God hates, which is sin. Now, we're not called to hate individual humans. We're called to love them to Jesus, despite what they do. But we are to hate the actions, the sins, the things that that God hates. And this isn't just an Old Testament concept, because the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 9, says almost exactly the same thing. He says, let love be genuine, abhor or hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The Christian heart is one that's being changed through Jesus Christ. And as we are changed, we grow in loving him more and hating the sin that he hates. Now, I want to give a caveat to this because if you don't hate your own sin and you hate everybody else's sin, you probably don't love Jesus. that's, That's the reality of it. We have to hate the sin in our own hearts because we're not somehow set apart as these separate, perfect human beings that never struggle. As we grow to love Jesus, what we also grow to do is to hate the parts in our lives that don't honor him. And we grow to hate those things so that we can love him more and more and watch as he works through us to help us love him. So the first thing we do is in response to the sovereignty of God is we love God. We love him. Secondly, the, first, the second half of verse 10 through 11 says um, that he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. The second response to the sovereignty of God I think we can have or should have in our lives from this text is, um, is to know the love and care that God actually has for us. Though God is sovereign and ruling and reigning on the throne, that does not mean he's absent. And that does not mean that he's unengaged in your life. The Bible presents the picture of God as a God who is both far above and very near. You actually saw that or heard that in Paul's explanation of this as well, right? That, that God has, is, is this God who made everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them. And then he says that God has made us to seek him and find him, which isn't hard because he's actually near to each one of us. God is both infinitely above us and personally near us. And so if, you're, if your view of God is, is out of whack there, where you think that God is just this God up in the heavens and he doesn't care about what you or what you're doing or your life, then you don't have a biblical picture of God. But on the flip side, if you think that God is just like your homeboy sitting next to you, remember the Jesus is my homeboy shirts? I hated those shirts so much. Uh, but that's, it's ridiculous. Um, but, but if we just think that, oh yeah, he's just here to kind of you know, egg me on and, and you know, uh, validate everything I do, and he's just kind of my buddy here sitting next to me, then we also have a stunted view of God. God is both, uh, he is both high above us and near us. And so, yes, he is the God who exists far above all other gods, including ourselves, and as we set ourselves up as gods in our own mind, and also is near to preserve our lives, to deliver us, and and to be involved in our lives. One one of the theologies or or false religions that exist is what's something called deism, 
And deism is a belief that God, there's a God who made everything, but then he just kind of dips out and he leaves and he doesn't really stay involved. But that's not the biblical picture of God. God is both in control and above all things and also intimately involved in them. So you need to know God loves you. He cares for you. He's not absent from your life. He's not aloof to what you're going through. God cares for you and he's actively working in your life, even in ways you don't know. John Piper once said that God is always doing 10,000 things in our lives and we might be aware maybe of three of them. So that's the second thing that we can do. We can respond by knowing his love and care for us. Thirdly, verse 12, the last thing that this psalm takes us to is this. Rejoice in the Lord, O you his righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The third response is simple. It's right there. Rejoice and give thanks. Rejoice in who God is, in the Lord, and give thanks to his holy name. It says, rejoice in the Lord, O you his righteous, O you righteous. So here's the question. How do we become righteous? Through Jesus Christ. That's right. Jesus Christ makes us righteous. It is that he takes all of our sin upon himself and in exchange gives us all of his righteousness as we believe and trust in him. That is the greatest act of love that God has done for each of us. And that because we respond to faith in Jesus Christ, we are counted righteous. We are counted as righteous before him. And that if we are in him, righteous in him through Jesus Christ by faith, we can rejoice in the Lord. We can find our joy in him. We can find all that, we're, that our hearts desperately need in him. And we can give thanks to him. We can pivot all of our hurts and problems and struggles into praise and give thanks to his holy name. I think this psalm shows us very clearly that God is in control of all things. And what we're called to do is to consider him, to think about him, to to wake up in the mornings pondering the reality of God's sovereign control and to learn to rejoice in that sovereign control because that is where we can tap into settled peace in our lives. No matter what, no matter what's happening, no matter what may come to us, we can be settled and at peace because God is in control and God is not absent from us or aloof, but he's a God who's both in control and involved in our lives. And that, that sets us up for joy. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the, for the love that you have displayed for us in Christ as you have made it possible as we trust in you to be righteous before you, to, to uh, stand in this state of, of righteousness that we did not earn or deserve. We pray, God, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you in that way, that they would come to realize their need for you, would turn to you, and that they would give their lives over to you. And for those who have done so, Lord, would you help us to grow? Would you help us to grow in, in the knowledge of your sovereignty and the knowledge 
uh, of your love and that you would help us, God, to, to know that these two things exist together and, and that that is what produces joy in us. We pray for our time now as we respond that you would give us hearts and minds and mouths to rejoice in you through the songs we sing, to, to be grateful for everything you've done for us, most particularly grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ as he died for our sins and made us righteous before you. As we remember you through this Lord's Supper, would you help us to, to have our hearts in the right place through that? And I pray, God, that you would meet us wherever we need to be met this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take some time to sing a few songs together.